It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Welcome home. Well, it's it's good to be back. I obviously missed you. The Prime Minister of Iceland was a good substitute for you in the intro. And the great news is that uh, she stood in for me last week, so I was off, and, and she did a tweet saying that I could perhaps stand in for her That's as good. Prime Minister of Iceland. That's really nice so, of yeah, her. So, yeah, so this could be the Jeffocracy in action. You think you're going to become the Supreme Ruler of Iceland? Well, she's got to take some time off, hasn't she? It's true. She could, like, maybe, like, when she goes on holiday... Yeah. You could, like, fill in for her. Well, that is what I feel was implied in the tweet, so I'm just waiting for the call. The Jeffocracy is one yeah. step closer. I'll be checking my spam folder regularly. Do you think we should tell our listeners what happened? Yes, so it was it was a very strange situation. My wife ended up being in hospital for five days, and she's on the mend now, but she got a bacterial infection called cellulitis. And the first indication we, we got, I'm going to show you a photo, her nose blew up to about three times its normal size. Oh my Look at that. God. I mean, she does not look herself. She looks like she's wearing a joke nose there. It was it was so strange, and then um, it kind of her nose looks like mine. (laughs) (laughs) It's that bad. (laughs) (laughs) It happened to her whole face. So we we went to the hospital, and she was admitted, and she had to have intravenous antibiotics for a few days. And she does look miserable. Yeah, it was, and that was before she even went to hospital. It got it got worse than that. Uh, So I was being the dutiful husband, and And I was a sympathetic friend. I mean, it's obviously not all about me. No, 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 no. But you you did send a very nice bunch of flowers. And then you said to me, do you think this shows you in a bad light because you didn't send her any flowers? <laughs> so thanks a lot. Well, I just thought of, I'm just so sensitive to your sensitivity <laughs> that I did sort of reflect afterwards. I was thinking, you know, does, is Jeff going to think I'm sort of flower shaming him by, you know, sending the flowers myself? He's not sent the flowers. <laughs> I'm just, I'm sort of, you know, I'm trying to sort of, you know, it's like sort of reading the googly in cricket. You know, I'm trying to sort of read, mm. you know. Your sensitivity is a wonderful thing about you, only ever undermined ever so slightly by your need to let everyone know how sensitive you are at all times. <laughs> insensitive. No, sensitive. Oh, I see, sensitive. yes. Yeah. Does yeah. that display insensitivity? No, no, well, maybe. maybe. But, uh, yeah, anyway, well, I'm very, very pleased that she is... And, and you didn't on... see last week as a big break? You didn't see it as being like when, when Deck had to host... Saturday night takeaway without Well, you did amps. sound very nervous, sort of thinking, did I then want to sort of dump you and just do it on my own? Go solo. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no, I, honestly, it was, it, was, it was not the same without you. Well, I missed 
doing the podcast. I hope you understand. It was I totally exceptional understand. circumstances. I totally understand. So I've not seen, this is the first time I've seen you in a couple of weeks, because the last time I saw you prior to this, you were behind the DJ decks at my at wife's Sarah's birthday party. party. And the reason Ed was behind the DJ was decks down the music. is the music was too loud for him. He wanted it turning down a bit. I think it was a very nice party. You know, I think I had popular opinion behind me on or when I... I think, I think you're right. I think there seems to me from talking to people, and I'm on the same side of the line as you, yeah. but there seems to be people above a certain age wanted uh... the music turned down. People below a certain age were, were quite happy wow, with it at a volume they really could perhaps gyrate to. Because you weren't really doing any gyrating so yourself. It must be sort of odd for you to be on the wrong side of the age divide, <laughs> because normally you'd be on the sort of right side of that divide, being sort of borderline millennial. Yeah, yeah. Did, or at least pretending to you, be. Did it sort yeah. of, it might, yeah. Yeah. It felt, but there, there was a moment at which you, both you and I were behind the decks, and I think people thought, you know, maybe they, they were in for some kind of DJ versus DJ face off. DJ know. off. Yeah. Uh, but of course, the big thing was meeting Emily Power. Mm. Emily Power. Yeah, she said she said it was very exciting. It was great. To I had meet a selfie you. with Emily Power. I think you had lots of And Annabelle. From the other podcast. Yes. So this this was weird. Um so Annabelle, who I co-hosted a radio show with, with for many years and co-host a podcast with, was in the same room as Ed. And it, it it really did feel like two worlds collided. I thought, what are the two of you saying? I was reminded about how much younger than you, Annabelle, is actually. <laughs> I think she's two years younger than me. I think the age difference. Are you serious? Yeah, I think the age difference between me and Annabelle is less than the age difference between me. I'm genuinely amazed. Yeah, yeah. I look bad on it. She looks good on it, is what you're saying. Well, no, I mean, it's more that how good she looks. (laughs) She just looks so much younger than you. I sort of had her down as sort of 35. Oh, I'll tell her. I'll tell her. Yeah. You were a big hit with people at the party. I think I had the lurgy, didn't I? Yeah. In fact, that, that, they did say something, the doctors at the hospital, they said, has she been in contact with anybody with the Lurgy recently in a loud environment? No, of course, I'm not serious. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, it's good, it's to, good be to be reunited. reunited yeah. Yes. Yeah. We said that we did that in unison, didn't we? Yeah, we're starting to finish each other's uh, sentences. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. So we're talking on the podcast this week. It's a really great conversation. It's about... How do we make change happen? Campaigning for change. And we've got two shining examples of that. Gina Martin, who's responsible for changing the law on upskirting, making it a criminal offence. And Matt Zab cousin who has got big change in policy on fixed odds betting terminals. He started the big campaign on that. It's just come to fruition. And then we'll sort of be kind of piecing all that together about what does it tell us about campaigning with with somebody who I think is a great guy, Matthew Bolton of Citizens UK, the organisation that has been the big campaigners for the living wage, among other things. And he's written a book which you are obsessed with. A great book called How to Resist. So what's your reason to be cheerful this week then? Well, my reason to be cheerful is having you back. Oh, stop it. Yes, yeah. it is. It really wasn't the same without you. Well, thank you. Um, and there wasn't anything else obvious that suggested itself. So <laughs> that was an easy standby. I thought I'd get some points from it, displaying, again, my sensitivity yeah, yeah, and yeah, general yeah, yeah. sort of empathy. Yeah. Yeah. I've rather undermined it now, haven't yeah, I? Yeah, yeah. What's your reason to well, be Well, I, I feel like you've painted me into a corner where I should say it's being back with you. No, because I've sort of undermined my... Yeah. I've sort of stepped on my yeah. own reasons. So. I was going to say it's Alfonso Mango season. Have you ever had an Alfonso Mango? I mean, 
I, I genuinely think if you've never tasted an Alfonso mango, you've never tasted a mango. They come from India. You only get them for four or five weeks at this time of year, and they are just sublime. Uh, if you've got an Indian greengrocer near you, you can get them f- from there. But remember, only for a few weeks. Can I, can I get them? I, the- I hate to sort of yeah. be like environmentally, but what about the th- carbon footprint situation? I was going to ask you about all those flights you took over yeah. the last year. I mean, what is the rule on on imported fruit and vegetables? Well, as a former minister for the environment, maybe you can tell me. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that, should I? I've rather not only have I sort of screwed up my own reason to be cheerful, but now I've screwed up yours, which is a which is a sort of unprecedented <laughs> unprecedented achievement, isn't it? Can I just say in my defence, I'm a vegetarian. I know, you're a really good person. But I know how we can get to the bottom of the, this question and many others to do with climate change. And that is on our live show, which is now less than a week away. And we're going to be talking about climate change with Fahana Yamid of Extinction Rebellion, uh, Emily Shukbra, who's an absolutely brilliant climate scientist from uh, the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, and Chris Stark, who's the head of the government's watchdog, the Climate Change Committee, that's just recommended that we get to zero emissions in 2050. And we're going to be joined by the brilliant Emily Dean, who if you ever listen to Frank Skinner's radio show, she's the co-host on that. She's a great writer. She hosts the Walking the Dog podcast. And we're going to offer people the chance to change the world in 30 seconds. 15. 22 and a half. People should find their tickets from South Bank, Underbelly, yeah, so so we'll put if you, if you look in the description notes of this podcast, it's all there. You can you can yeah. you can do it there. Otherwise, if you just Google Underbelly South Bank, you'll you'll find Reasons it on that website. Yeah. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. With us now are Gina Martin, who is the activist behind the campaign on upskirting and author of Be the Change, a toolkit for the activist in you, and Matt Zarb Cousin, who is spokesman for Stop the Fixed Odd Betting Terminals and the campaign for Fairer Gambling. Uh, hello, both. Hi, thanks for having us. Well, thanks, thanks for joining us. And, and Gina, let's start with you. Um, can you tell us the story behind uh, your, your campaign? to make upskirting a criminal offence. Yes, yeah, so that was July 2017. Um, I was at British Summertime Festival in Hyde Park and I was waiting for a band to come on stage in the middle of the day, um, really hot day. And I was with my sister and a group of guys were sort of hitting on me and I said no probably 70,000 times. And you can kind of, they were getting angry, I guess, at that point. And um, one of them took photos with his iPhone between my legs of my crotch up my skirt. And I didn't see him do that, but I did see the other guys on the phone looking at the photos um so i grabbed the phone off one of the guys and held it up got into like a bit of a scuffle with him and then people in the crowd pushed him and helped me run through the crowd it was like sixty thousand people crowd so it was huge and ran through the crowd got to security they called the police and the police came and they're really nice but they just deleted the picture and were like don't worry it's gone and they were like there's nothing we can do sorry carry on with your night and then I kind of looked into the law and found out that it had been a sexual offence in Scotland for 10 years and various other countries around the world, but that we hadn't done that here. Um, and that's when I launched it online. So, so how, do you, how did you go from thinking, this, this is ridiculous that there's no law against this in England and Wales, to thinking, I, I should be the person to make a difference <laughs> with this? There was a bit of a, a gap there. I think at, be, at the beginning, I was very angry about it. I think it was like the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of growing up as a young lady, you deal with a lot of stuff you don't want to, and you get on with it for no reason. I don't know why we do. Um, and I went on social media and I kind of posted, actually, 
ironically, a picture, a selfie of me and my sister, and they were in the background. I'd found it on my phone, and I was like, oh, that's them. So I posted it on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, asked everyone to share it. And then Facebook got in touch with me and were like, you have to take that down. That's harassment. And then I was <laughs> harassing. God. So I was like, okay, I think we're done oh here. My God. This is ridiculous. Um, and I started a petition and started a social media campaign that was fairly small. I'd worked in advertising for seven years. Um, and I was like, okay, can we get these guys prosecuted? And it kind of started as that for the first week. And then I just had this moment talking to my boyfriend where I was like, why don't I just try and do the bigger fight? Like, I, I never would, but let's just give it a go. Like, I would have never done this before. So why not? Why just fight for my own case? Why not just try and sort this out, you know, big time? And here we are today. <laughs> and you'd, know, you'd got no history in no. Sort of campaigning Scraped and petitioning. school. <laughs> right, a- right. Average at school. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, not at all. I just learned on the job, really. And how did it go from, you know, wanting to change the law to changing the law, just for our listeners? So I... The social media campaign had happened and I'd done some kind of traditional media, some morning shows and debates and stuff. And I think I realised that I was doing what I think a lot of us have the propensity to do when we want to change something, where we kind of shout at the power structure and be like, you are to do something about this, change it. It's like, okay, how? I don't know if that's helpful. So how do I get clever here and strategic? And how do I, okay, I'm changing legislation here. So I need a law firm, I need a lawyer, I need to really think about a media strategy, like a political strategy. And kind of had that light bulb moment. And then I went to a whole bunch of law firms and Gibson Dunn, who are a global law firm, um, agreed to back me. Actually, it was one of their young lawyers, Ryan Whelan, who's 29, who's now a great friend. And we got together and planned this strategy and then went to Parliament and started talking to MPs small parties and kind of building an army inside the walls, really, was how we started it. And did it always just feel like something that was possible? No. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, so many times I didn't know if it was possible. And so many times... I wanted to stop. I don't think it's helpful for me to sit here and be like, oh, yeah, it was great and easy and I just smashed it. Like, it was really hard. And I, without political um, experience or law experience, that was really difficult. But I think it shows, and I'm really proud of it because I think it really shows that if you get the right support and you know your stuff and you do the research and you're clever and smart and strategic about it, you can make that change. But I think often times we're kind of shouting about it, but we're not really get, going behind the scenes doing the heavy lifting and, and you, and you came it. close to getting the law changed with I did. Vera Hobhouse's private members' bills. Mm. That's a legislation introduced by an MP, and then Christopher Chope, yeah, um, his eternal discredit, blocked the bill. <laughs> yes, that sort of then superpowered. It put a rocket out of the government, didn't it? It did, yeah, because we'd already had the backing in principle from the Ministry of Justice. So we'd always been, already been working with them for about six months. And we knew he was going to do that, obviously, because, you know, that's always a, a possibility. But we already had the Ministry backing. Lucy Frazier, Victoria Akin went into the, the House and sat there to show their support. And the when two I came Tory out, MPs, yes. Sorry, Minister, yes, yeah. exactly. And they were there to show their support. We came out and we were all really disappointed. I went into kind of overdrive where I was like, it's going to be fine. Let's just keep going. It's like, oh, my God, who's this girl? We didn't know what we were going to do that in that moment, but Lucy was like, I need to go and think about this. We agreed to meet up the next day and then we tabled a government bill, which effectively went over everyone's heads. And that's what we saw through for the past year. And at any stage in any of it, did, did you meet anybody who thought it was a bad idea for a law? No, just heaps of people on Twitter that have no display picture, but no one in real right, life. Right, right, right. Like, no, I didn't meet one MP who was like, this is a terrible idea. It's just more, how do we do this logistically? Like, how do we get this through when Brexit's happening? You know? Yeah. Um, Matt, let, let's talk to you. Uh, the, the campaign you've been very involved in is stopping fixed odds betting terminals. Uh, can you talk to us about how you became involved in that, what it was about that that was uh, resonated for you personally? For me personally, it was uh, I got addicted to fixed odds betting terminals when I was 16, so I was underage. And then over a period of four years, I lost in the region of 
£20,000. I got into a huge amount of, huge amount of debt. Uh, came very close to, towards the end, uh, taking my own life. Uh, and, you know, before I started gambling, I didn't know you could get addicted to gambling. Uh, I didn't know you could get... I didn't know that certain products brought that out in people um, uh, more than more than other products. I th- you know, I think the whole understanding of gambling addiction, my my understanding of it, was very limited until I was experiencing it. And then, um, when when I stopped gambling, I had a, a therapy and uh, took me about six months from then to to completely stop. And then finished my degree after that, and then uh, started campaigning just voluntarily uh, met sort of worked with a group of reformed gambling addicts and we were sort of trying to get something going uh, and really uh, I did dispatches program in 2012 which was on like Britain's high street gamble it was like a Michael Crick thing and then a guy got in touch with me called Derek Webb who's a philanthropist and he wanted to campaign against these machines uh, he had a background in gambling and understood that some gambling products are more addictive than others and it's about game design and how it interacts with the player and we set up stop the fobts in early 2013 and uh it's been a real (laughs) testing absolute slog because we've been up against an incredibly well-funded lobby uh vested interests it's worth maybe explaining to people what the, because people have heard about these machines yeah. but what's unique about these machines compared to a sort of normal fruit machine or a what just if you can just explain okay so in in 2001 the, the betting betting shops they're always allowed machines but they they brought in um what they called a fixed odds betting terminal and what they were trying to do is allow high stakes casino content in their premises. And the way they did that was they said the server that determines each, the result of each spin is outside the premises. And therefore, it's the same as betting on a horse race. So each event is outside the premises. So that's how they kind of got through, exploited a loophole in the law, the existing legislation. And then Labor, uh, the Labour government and the, the gaming board were worried about losing a legal challenge. So they got around the table and they come up with a code of practice and they said, OK, you can have these machines, but only a £100 a spin. So they limited it at £100. That then became... What are you spinning on? Roulette. Uh, yeah. Casino uh, games. Yeah. 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 So it's like high speed, yeah. high stakes yeah. casino games. And uh, then in 2005 Gambling Act, it was legit. they were legitimised uh, and... They left a provision in the act that said that if you, if there was evidence of harm, that maximum stake can be reduced. So our whole campaign was premised around that. It was that there is evidence of harm uh, and reducing the maximum stake would reduce that significantly. It would eliminate the addictive casino content because you need a higher staking capacity to, to operate that kind of content. And um, obviously once we'd identified... That's that as the objective, and that could be enacted with secondary legislation. Uh, so, without a new act of parliament, then it was a case of finding who the decision maker was and just kind of targeting that particular decision maker um, by proxy, almost because you don't want to. I think a lot. What a lot of campaigns do is they make an enemy of the person that can enact the decision. Yes, and I think that's a real mistake um, because you you don't want to entrench their opposition. Uh, if if anything, you want to maximise the amount of political capital. Who's in, the person in this case? You mean the government, basically? Tracy Crouch. Tracy Crouch, I yeah. see. The, tr- so, the, the, the minister, yeah. Yeah, so Tracy was um, a backbencher 
uh, when she first became aware of the issue. And then she became sports minister after the 2015 election. And obviously sports minister has responsibility for gambling. And then she called the review uh, and was willing to listen to the evidence. And that's kind of what you want. And then it's a case of creating a context where the government has no choice but to go for £2. And, uh, you know, we had the Labour Party support as well at that point. Uh, we had, I mean, I think it's fine for the Labour Party to pressure the government directly in a more antagonistic way. But what you want to really do is just maximise the amount of political capital in it for Tracy and for the government to enact this because they're coming under huge amount of pressure from the, the bookmakers and their lobby. So they, they have to... Yeah, you have to incentivise it for them. And, and Tracy Crouch ended up resigning over this, over the fact that it had been delayed, which and it then wasn't delayed. Yeah, so uh, Tracy, uh, all credit to her, you know, she's absolutely fantastic. And she did, you know, it was a very, very brave decision. And actually, as a Spurs fan, she probably would be going to the Champions League final now. <laughs> so, uh, a sports minister, so fair play. Um, no, and... She obviously, in the course of doing the review and looking at the evidence and meeting the families affected and the individuals affected, her views became very entrenched and she couldn't justify. So the government said, OK, we'll reduce it to two pounds. And then because of pressure from the Treasury, who had been kind of lobbied by the bookmakers and because of yeah. uh, pressure from the bookmakers, they sort of said, OK, we'll, we'll, reju- we'll delay it to 2020. And, and Tracy said, that's unacceptable. You know, if we've said these machines are a social blight, we should do it now. And thankfully, it's happened in April, I think, in no small part down to Tracy's resignation. And is, it, is that, is two, does £2 do the job? Does it, is it, do you think it's going to massively reduce the harms? Yes, it certainly will, associated with this product. So, um, look, it's £2 everywhere else, in bingo halls, in arcades, right. mm. in betting shops. It's right. very difficult to argue that they can't have machines at £2. Right. But, yeah, as with all these things, you're never going to completely eliminate problem gambling, but you can eliminate the excesses of harm. Well, that's what's interesting in in a way about both your campaigns is that they have very specific targets. Mm. You know, it's it's not, you know, a general campaign against misogyny or or, or a general campaign around addiction and gambling. Do you think that is a a key thing for a successful campaign to sort of hone in on a a very specific thing? I think so. I actually read a little bit, a a little excerpt from your writing and and it said about breaking down the issue. And I've written a lot about that in the book. I think look we look at extinction rebellion they're doing a very broad issue and they're doing like multiple protests that's a very umbrella campaign but i think there's a lot of value in putting down a puzzle piece of a big problem properly and then going on to the next and especially that comes from personal experience because you're best placed to understand that problem and you have the passion so you don't run out it doesn't stop um that's what i found anyway definitely and and i think it's as as important to publicize your objective as being the solution to this particular problem than it is making people aware of the problem mm-hmm. because yeah, totally. what you want to do is make if everyone's if everyone thinks this is the solution then the government thinks we have to do this where does it go next for both of you oh gosh there's so many th- I, I think it's one of those things where now that i've done that i'm like oh there's so many things i want to change i'm always having said as a child it. that the only profession you wouldn't <laughs> ever go into is politics yep. correct yeah that was a stupid thing to say. <laughs> but um, you said as a child the only profession you would go exactly, into is politics. Exactly. Uh, you know, you're a great exactly. you're podcasting. Exactly. We've switched. And I said I'm never going to be a podcaster. I said that's the one thing you won't catch me catch me doing. <laughs> At least not with that Jeff Lloyd. Um, 
yeah, go on. What's, yeah, what's next for you? There's so many things I want to do. I've just actually started. Obviously, the book has been the big project, yeah. but I've just started the second campaign in private, which is a more general um, solving a, a specific issue, but on a more general level, on a commercial level instead of a political level, because there's a lot of money in brands to be putting into. Um, like action to stop social problems. They've got so much money to put into it and now they're under pressure to do that. We, I used to work in advertising and they used to have the phrase sex sales and, you know, now it's activism sales. That's literally what they say. And I'm going to schools a lot. I'm working with kids a lot. I'm working with girl guiding. I'm going in to do workshops about social media and their phone. I feel like teachers and are under so much pressure. They're so stretched and they need an independent person to go in who's maybe a bit younger and has been in this industry and understands it to really get the kids on board. So I'm doing a lot of speaking jobs like that. Are you carrying on campaigning in this area, Matt? The industry's had a massive wake-up call and if they don't do enough to reduce harm and if they don't if they don't welcome regulations that will do that then obviously there'll be a a, a time for a campaign again but uh, at the moment I'm pretty optimistic about what we can achieve in the short term and it looks like there's going to be a statutory levy of 1% that goes into treatment so that was one of our objectives early Wonderful. on so I think there's quite a lot that's going to happen in the short term if you think about people who are listening to this who have got their own causes that they think are being ignored or misunderstood or action is incredibly urgent. What what's and this doesn't mean to sound trite, but what what's the kind of advice you would give them about sort of going about making this change happen? Because both of you in your different ways are sort of shining examples of how you can make change happen. Yeah, I think my probably best advice would to be to do all the to front load the work. So specifically for my campaign, I can only speak from my experience, it would have been very easy for us to, for you to walk into any power structure and go, okay, we have a problem, I want you to solve it. It's fine. People do that a lot, right? But it's not necessarily the most effective way to do it. If you're doing the research, you get the authority behind you. Like we went around the UK and got all the best legal authorities to kind of agree with the solution we'd put down or um, collaborate and come up with the solution. So immediately the entire country's legal force was kind of behind our idea before we even even went to parliament, you know? So front loading the work, doing your research, being strategic and taking your time. Oftentimes when we come up with a a process, we'll go, okay, you see constantly petitions that have 400 uh, signatures and they haven't gone anywhere. And oftentimes it's because they've had this great idea and they've gone, okay, I'm going to make a petition. But where's that going to go? How's it going to be used? What if someone objects or doesn't want to use that? Where's the next avenue? Fit, You know, um, setting a goal and working backwards and being very strategic and taking your time, not rushing it is critical, I think. Where I think conventional uh, PR and public affairs campaigns don't work is where they don't align the two things like every so if you have an objective and you know who can enact that objective say for example it's a government minister then the next stage is to try to get as many members of parliament or politicians behind that right so how do you do that you target the pr and the comms in their constituency Mm -hmm. so the way we did that was we uh put out press releases to local local newspapers showing how much was lost in each constituency. And then you get a quote from the MP and then you've got the MP on side and you can follow that up. And it's like, that's where I think people make the mistake is that the two things have to be joined up mm. and it's possible. You can do it. It doesn't take a huge amount of resources. I don't have to go to all of these areas to place the stories. Everything can be done from your laptop. You know, there's a lot you can do. Um, if you've got, say, whatever the issue is, if you've got, uh, a number of like, people affected or uh, amount of money lost or anything like that, then then you can create a story out of that. Uh, and, th- and that's kind of what happened in the end. We had the majority of the House of Commons behind 
£2 and the government had no choice but to enact it and they risked losing a vote on the finance bill if they delayed it. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I think there's a lot There's a lot that can be done, but uh, I don't know where to, where to begin really with yeah. answering that. Yeah. Um, read my article in Tribune. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, we'll, post a link. we'll post a link to it. And what about from the top down? So it, it seems to me that all this stuff starts with people. It's, it's real grassroots stuff. If we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, if I was to make you joint ministers for civil society, what could the government be doing to support campaigners to, to make it a path easier to navigate for campaigners? I'd love to see permission. So I'd love to see some kind of opening where, uh, you know, not, I can't think of a better word for it than some kind of scholarship situation, but I'd love to be able to see the door open because I feel like trying to get into that space is hard enough. So for instance, if I was in any kind of leadership position or a minister, we have surgeries with local MPs. It would be wonderful to have some kind of submissions for ideas on how we can improve our society from local activists in different areas. We don't have any any permission there. So automatically, I think so many people feel like, well, there's no point in trying. So I like don't know how to get into that Departmental place. surgeries. Kind yeah. Of. yeah. Yeah. Of ideas of how we can improve and bringing people more into the process. There's a brilliant organisation called Campaign Boot Camp, which I spoke at a couple of weeks ago. And they give you almost like a, a week-long crash course in... in comms, uh, media strategy, uh, communi- uh, public affairs strategy, engaging with MPs, you know, creating a, a movement, uh, working with like-minded organisations. And I think that's like brilliant. I think we need more of those. There are actually mechanisms that exist, legislative mechanisms that exist already. One of them is called the Sustainable Communities Act, and we use that quite effectively. And it's basically where if you've got um, an idea to change national policy, uh, a local authority can submit that uh, to the government and gather support from other local authorities. There are some existing mechanisms where you can get a route in and you can build a campaign around that, but it is they're very limited. Mm. Maybe a new consultancy is born here. The Done. sort of Martin Zab cousin <laughs> alliance. All over it. Let's do <laughs> it. Don't you that think, sounds good yeah, to me, yeah. Right. Don't you think you can go around the country? You're your own campaign boot camp. You can go around the cur- that country. That would be joy. And in fact, maybe we'll have listeners who email in with their campaigns they want to run, who want some sort of free advice from the, from from the embryonic consultants. I mean, you've really set us up here, Ed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds joy. I'd love to do that. Great, uh, Gina and Matt. Thank you so much. Thanks for, Thanks for having us. Thanks. Well, following that conversation, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by somebody who I personally think is absolutely brilliant, and that is Matt Bolton, who runs an organisation called Citizens UK. He's written an incredibly powerful book called How to Resist, which I urge you all to read, which is about the theory of community organising and making change happen, uh, which is what Citizens UK does. Matt, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. I wonder if we should start, because I, I, I sort of partly want you to kind of explain some of the thinking behind what we heard from uh, Matt Zab cousin and from Gina. Um, but, but I wonder if we should, we should start by talking about how we first met, because it, it's an insight into your methods, isn't it? Yeah, so this was um, early 2010 or end of 2009, and we were working on the Living Wage campaign, and we were trying to influence the parties leading into the 2010 general election. And we'd been working intensely with cleaners who themselves cleaned in, uh, cleaned in number 10, cleaned in the treasury, cleaned in the cabinet office because, you know, we recognized that their voices and their experiences had, uh, you know, a lot of potential in terms of persuading politicians, in terms of getting media coverage for the fact that, you know, the massive gap in power and influence between these, you know, the secretaries of state and, uh, you know, countries 
most influential politicians and then 15 layers of management and contracting down the chain the people that um cleaned up their desks and cleaned up their offices so uh, we brought it was grandmother and mother uh, in the same family santa sanchez family um into an office to to meet with you and they told their stories translated from spanish to english i remember they cleaned alistair darling's office in the treasury i see treasury they were treasury and this was about whether we paid the living wage to Whitehall cleaners. Absolutely, that's right. And so they told the, their stories and experiences of what it's like to earn less than a living wage, uh, you know, having to cook. Uh, I remember it was about cooking lentils, cook, cooking a huge thing of lentils on a Sunday, and that was what would feed the family through the week uh, and not being able to afford the tube and having to get the bus home for three hours. They lived in Hounslow, I remember. So, it was, yeah, those kind of stories face-to-face with the politicians like yourself who could then go on to write that into the manifesto. Which I did, actually to be fair to me, uh, to, to, to pay, pay the living wage in Whitehall. Tell us what what that story says about the way citizens, what your theory of change is, how change happens and the role of people in it. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of different things in it. I suppose one would be the importance of power. Um, nobody is powerless. Nobody is powerless, yeah. So when when, when you say power, people often think about you know, oh, that means the powerful, the people with all the power. And one of the things that we we know about that is actually that everyone has some power and you can build up power through relationships. And so, you know, the Sanchez family on their own as individuals, if they were to speak to their supervisor and ask for a living wage, they didn't have the power to get it. Um, but if they could connect through uh, an organising network like Citizens UK and then they could speak to you, um, then, then that that would that would change things so one of the things about power analysis you know both in terms of everyone has some power but also who's got the power to make the change and when is a good time to try and influence people obviously in in, in that case before uh, the election but also you know the iron rule of organizing which is never do for others what they can do for themselves and so you know we weren't in there as professional lobbyists with um research reports um we just enabled the Sanchez family to speak directly to you um, so that they could make the change for themselves. Obviously they couldn't do it on their own. So there has to be a whole lot of work and campaign strategy that goes around enabling them to do that. Um, But it's their, it's their agency in it, which is important. I mean, that campaign is, is something that launched in East London, you know, churches and schools talking about, you know, what do we do about the problem that parents are working two or three jobs and don't have time for their kids? And it, we just started off, can we persuade this hospital, can we persuade this bank to pay the living wage? And over the course of now, you know, uh, 18 years, uh, it's become, you know, the most successful living wage campaign in, in around the world, I think. And if you think about what um, Gina and Matt were saying to us, just connect some of the sort of dots of of what it is that makes for a successful campaign in your in your thinking which you set out in the book yeah so it sort of starts with um you know if if you want change you need power um so you you it's not just enough to sort of know something is wrong um or believe something needs to change um, you know any any campaign and the and the upskirting campaign and and the stuff on you know um, the betting uh, fixed odds betting terminals, you know they, they have a there's a there's a power building strategy um, at work in that campaign that's become that's been effective. 
Um, and that's the power of people coming together to demand change? Exactly, yeah. And it could be more kind of grassroots mobilisation of people. It could be more um, sort of intentional building of coalitions. You know, obviously different campaigns can have different approaches to the building of power. Uh, but you have to have an approach to building to building power. Um, because you say you, you're one of your, you have many good, great phrases as an organisation, but one of them is you only get the justice, you have the power to compel. Yeah, I know. And that's actually from Thucydides. Right. Uh, of course it is. It's that, that's that's <laughs> Thucydides' first appearance on this podcast, I think. Is it? Yeah. Well, yeah. Thucydides... We've made... bid for him every week, but he's not been available, actually. Gong. Yeah. Uh, Thucydides, yeah, he makes an appearance every at the beginning of all, every single one of our residential organising trainings because he's got this amazing Athenian-Melian dialogue, um, where which is this characterization of the more powerful and the less powerful and how they tend to relate to each other. Power is key. But also, it's about... Um, we talk about problem and issue. So, you know, what's great about both the examples that you've just had on, on, on this, um, on this podcast is that, you know, gambling problems is a, is a problem or, or debt or poverty is a, or addiction, I suppose, you know, those are big problems, but you know, you you can sort of write reports about them and you can write analysis about them, but you actually can't win a campaign. It's exactly what Jeff was saying earlier. You see, you're a natural Thucydidean, clearly. was I on the right side? Yeah, yeah. Oh, great! Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're saying you can't just talk in a big way about yeah, you gambling have to sort of hone in on a, on a solution and then try. And Sorry, but you carry get on ahead that, of steam yeah. behind that. Right? Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and sometimes talking about the big problem motivates lots of people. But yeah. unless you unless you pin it down and make it specific, we talk about problem to issue. Issue is something that's you know specific and achievable and tangible. You know when you've won and when you haven't won. Um, and you know often that gets you know with the living wage campaign as an example, you know it's it's ten pound fifty five per hour in London. It's not just like more pay or poverty. You know you have to have something specific. So that's problem to issue. So a campaign like Occupy London, you have criticised uh, because it doesn't fit that model. Are campaigns like that use, useful at all? I mean, just on problem to issue, they they did actually come up with I think on like day three of the of the camp, they did come up with a list. Um, but the list is quite remarkable. Um, I'm not going to get the exact wording right, but I think about there there were about 19 things, and uh, you know one of them was to sort of um, end the injustice of uh, taxation or, uh, and and ending inequality. And you know there, this was 19, there which 19. are laudable aims. Oh, 100. But they seem very they're not these broad. Bits, yeah, not these bite sized. Do you feel like it's a little bit Miss World contestant? You know, so famously, people would say, so what are your interests? They would say, bringing about world peace. (laughs) Yeah, bringing about world peace, yeah. yeah. Can can I sort of just ask you something, though? Let's take Extinction Rebellion, more recent Mm. thing. Extinction Rebellion had three demands, state of climate emergency, uh, citizens' deliberation on climate, and uh, net zero by 2025. Net zero by 2025 is, to put it mildly, a Herculean aim. Uh, but I saw one of the campaigners um, interviewed, and he said, well, reach for the stars and you'll get the sky. I think Extinction Rebellion have changed the, the, the climate conversation, haven't they? Well, and also, you know, there are some specifics there. Yeah. Um, and they might be very stretching. Yeah. But, they aren't, but at least they are specific. Yeah. The Extinction Rebellion, they're operating at a slightly different kind of organising method. They haven't got, as we have, a kind of set membership structure that they're gradually trying to, you know, you build your power base. Um and you win incrementally, and theirs is more of a kind of big, big organising, mobilising uh, method, which they're employing quite effectively. You know, in terms of how do you how do you 
mobilize people rapidly on a, on a kind of mass basis and their aims i think are more yeah like you say change the conversation you know get the get the column inches but what i'd love to see yeah what i'd love to see is 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 mixing up the methods we don't get to you know zero emissions by 2025 without incremental change there is a there is a pathway between where we are now and there and it involves hundreds of different changes at a local and national level and uh you know uh adding to their strategy of kind of mass mobilization and, and grabbing public attention and sort of setting out the urgency of the crisis. Um, I think there's potential there to turn that into and to, and to, and to work out the right kind of coalitions. But, you know, it, it takes, it takes mixed methods. I mean, anything as big sure. as that needs mixed sure. methods, needs a range of organizations. Yeah. So Matt, on the podcast, we're always looking for good campaigns that people can get involved in. And you've got one exactly that fits into that category that, that you're working on at the moment, haven't you? Yeah, so it's called the Just Change Campaign. It's basically about kids um, who are on free school meals. And the amazing thing about this is we discovered it by listening to um, children in the Northeast saying, you know, what would you want to change? And these are children on free school meals. They said, look, I just want to keep my change. And we found out that money that's being allocated to kids every day to spend on food, if they don't spend it because they're absent or they don't spend they, they don't spend their full amount, it just leaks out. It just gets taken away, whether that's by the private provider or the council or the school. And so we started digging and it's basically 65 million quid, we estimate, is being taken off children on free school meals that they could use to spend on food. And so you can get, you can get involved in the campaign. You can find out about it. Go on Citizens UK website, search Just Change. But really in one, in one fell swoop, the government could just say, no, this money is for the children and it can't leak out the system. And if they don't spend it, they should have it the next day to spend. One of the most important principles of your work is about building relationships. This is, yeah. Je- Jeff's already really uncomfortable about this, just so we should say in <laughs> advance. <laughs> I think we should just sort of, we should sort of declare this for the audience. Um, and one of the things you do in any conversation is rounds. Do you want to just talk to people about the idea of relationships, one-to-ones, and sort of the process of rounds? If people don't have much power, and in particular you don't have a position of power, the only way you can build power is by building relationships. And that's something everyone can do. Uh, I'm not sure that it doesn't, it doesn't come easily to me. So, so, so the reason for that, so, there, so that's what the emphasis on the kind of relational, relational culture. And so, yeah, so the rounds is basically you start off the meeting rather than with like, you know, the chair, the appointed person with the title, you know, telling everyone what we're going to do. Um, you start with a with a rounds where everyone says, introduces themselves and says something about something that connects who they are their story to the subject at hand. Okay, let's do a rounds then. Can you talk me through it? I'm, I'm quite nervous about this. So talk me through what I have to do. Well, what, what the other thing we can do is, is, you, is you model it. Right. So, so rather than start with the person who's never been to one before, you start yeah. with someone. You know, yeah. So, so yeah. we're going we're to do a rounds. We'll do a simple, um, why do you care about making change? Okay, so, well, for, I mean, for me, so I grew up, Stone, we're in Stone, here in Stoke Newington, aren't we? I grew up in um, Forest Hill in South East London. And for me, I mean, the, the thing that got me interested in politics and got me angry about stuff was the experience of inequality of education. So I got a scholarship to a private school at 11, had five years in that school, and then um, chose to go to a sixth form, uh, back to the state system for sixth form. And what that meant for me was I basically had friends on on different sides of the sort of divide of of life chances and of, of wealth and all the rest of it and you know it was it was just so stark and uh, as a teenager you don't really think of it politically I just was living it but you know some friends had um you know 
played cricket and got bought a car on their 17th birthday and had had a tutor and got good work experience and stuff. And even if they sort of messed up along the way, they were put back on the path, you know, to a good university and that. And, and then another friends um, who it was just so, you know, they, you go, they go home it's like dodging a gang in the, in the stairwell where they lived and they look after their baby sister because, you know, mum's out working nights and that's where they do their homework and everything. And it just, so I, I, the thing that got me interested in making change at a young age was just basically seeing that difference in life chances for kids um, growing up and seeing the adults, um, well, just seeing the whole, it's like, you know, how hard you are, how, how hard you work and how clever you are. That was, that's the kind of story that we're told, but that just wasn't true for, for these kids. So you not only kind of give people have these different chances, but then you kind of blame the you kind of have a system that blames them for not doing as well. So that, that, and and really since, since that point, that's when I've been thinking, you know, I want to do something that makes a difference. I want to do something that, that tackles that problem in some way. Shall I go next? Yes. Um, so I suppose for me, why have I, why am I interested in sort of making change? What, what persuaded me I suppose it was, I mean, I think it was a lot to do with my upbringing as well. And I can't help feeling sort of in on reflection that it's a lot to do with being the child of, sort of parents who were affected by the Holocaust, because I think, I think that experience so shaped them. You know, my mum lost her dad in the concentration camp. My dad had to flee from his... Um, with his father to England and leaving mother, his mother and sister behind who survived the war, but also in hiding. Um, and I think they, it was such a sort of, you know, profoundly catastrophic sort of moment for them that I think it made them feel sort of, I think it sort of motivated them to be kind of people who wanted to sort of change, who felt they had to sort of use their time to try and change things. And so I suppose that's why it kind of felt rather sort of, it wasn't like we got taught to sort of say, you must, you know, read Marx and, you know, sort of make change happen. But but it sort of, I suppose it was kind of inculcated. And uh, the reason I'm doing the podcast is that Jeff sort of cheered me up by saying, look, you know, even though you're not leader of the lay party and you're all washed up you can you can uh, you can still find a way of sort of contributing ideas so i i feel like me sitting here and talking about the change that i you want to i do care about change but i'm sitting opposite somebody who was very instrumental in this very important campaign for the living wage and then somebody who's done all this incredible work fighting inequality and you know i've got my values from my background you know i come from um a family that that cares about that kind of thing but i think like the the change that i was interested in making in the podcast is is trying to promote the idea that things don't just get worse even though they seem like they're getting worse and things you know when we started the podcast and now worldwide in these different ways seem like they're getting worse and i was really interested in in giving some encouragement to people who felt depressed but what do you think made you interested in making the world a better place i mean in other words you could have 
you know, you were a successful DJ, yeah, a successful th- radio presenter. You could have just been, you know, someone who sort of shouted at your staff, felt important and kind of, you know, did, was, you know made successful radio programs. But you didn't need to be to care about ch- – you obviously cared enough about change that you came to me and said, yeah. I really want to make this program about ideas and that the ideas that can be reasons to make people cheerful and can change the world for the better. But if- I feel more broadly when I think about my background, the the life I've been lucky enough to have didn't seem possible to somebody from from my background. You know, it wasn't the type of job people did. It wasn't the sort of thing anybody around me. uh, I came from a very regular working class town. And I can, I suppose I can sometimes feel angry that 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 seems so impossible to people from my background so it's always felt important to me to to sort of not pull up the ladder you know not be one of those people but i don't know if that really gets to do you think that that's that it. makes I mean, sense to what that's, you're that's saying exact, that's exactly i mean what what because we all we always trying to build First of all, we're trying to help people tap into the the story and the anger that they do yeah. that they do have. And secondly, we're we're trying to build coalitions and build alliances of people who are very different. You know, whether it's um, Jewish people working with Muslim people, working with LGBT community. You know, we're we're, we're constantly building these diverse alliances. And so, but when you are as different as people are, when you ask them to tell a story about who they are, where they're from, how they understand their roots and what that makes them care about now. It's just something very human about it. And, you know, I was, you know, I get a real sense of you in two minutes. They're totally right. The rounds are the business, honestly. Because but also the whole notion of it is basically that you you appeal, you've got to reframe self-interest. So self-interest isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing, you know, in the sense of thinking, what's your interest in making change happen? What's Matt's interest in making change happen? And if you think about so many of the relationships people have with people at work, people in their local party, if they're a member of a local political uh, of a, uh, political party, which is something I identify with, um, MPs, you know, it's all so much more superficial than just this brief conversation. Yeah, there's lots of good things about the rounds. Honestly, I feel, feel very should... vulnerable after that. No, but it's really good. But I don't feel like I did a good job of explaining. You did a very good job, honestly. I still don't think I've answered the question. I know, I've known you yeah. for a long time, and yeah. I know a lot more about what motivates you now than I did 10 minutes ago. Or I know more about what motivates right. you, even though I know you very well. Right. I've never heard you talk like that. I mean, I thought you were interested in ideas, and but I suppose I'd never really thought, well, what is the, you know, what's the sort of core thing that's yeah, motivating but I'm you? still not sure how those two things connect. Well, I think you explained it very well. well. That's why the next, so after the rounds, the next tool is the one-to-one. Right. And yeah. you can't, you can't, I can't finish this without talking yeah. about that, because if we say the relationships is at the heart of it, then, you know, the one-to-one conversation is the thing that we spend most time teaching people who want to be leaders and want to make change, because it's, it's basically the tool of building relationships. But the other thing the rounds does is it spot, oh, I want to find out more about that person. You know, something about what that person said struck a chord, and I'm going to book a, a coffee and, and, and a conversation, which is just a little bit deeper than a normal. And it's not just talking about how we're going to win the living wage campaign. But it's talking about why do we care about the living wage and what is it about us and where we're coming from that means that's important. If people think, you know, Citizens sounds like a great organisation, which it is, campaigns on the living wage, on housing, on a whole range of things, how do they – you've got lots of chapters around the country. How do they 
find out more just get in touch um go on the website uh email call um citizens yeah i mean particularly uh yeah if you want to make change if you care about those campaigns um if you're part of a um local organization local association and if you if people are interested in the if they're in an organization they're interested in the two-day or the five-day training that you do you do these sessions don't you also on the website i i I can only you know can't recommend it highly enough including the athenian million thucydides hit then yeah yeah, then that's the one (laughs) that's the one to go for yeah again just just be in touch at citizens uk matt thanks so much for joining us thank you both so what do you think then i found it very inspiring talking to gina and Matt, especially, and just listening to the difference they've been able to make. And I understand what Gina says, that sometimes just navigating your way through it in the institutions and, and just government, it, it seems like something so alien to most people. I know it's the world you've lived in for most of your career. I'm an alien. <laughs> A legal alien yeah. in New York. I just really like the idea of breaking something down into a goal a solution instead of just pointing out a problem yeah in a way i think it's sort of in a different way what we're trying to do on the podcast but i sort of feel i feel it's really inspiring also to sort of hear two people um matt and gina who've you know set out from a sort of injustice and then sort of got things changed and it sort of shows that things can change, you know, I think they'd be the first to say that not every person who has a good campaign and a good cause is going to succeed. So, you know, it doesn't mean if your campaign doesn't succeed, it's a bad campaign or a bad cause, but but it shows you can... Instead of just thinking, oh, they should do something about that, just getting your hands dirty and, and yeah. changing it yourself. It's really and, and, you know, both of them obviously want to change other things as well. It's sort of, and I think that's part of what the what Matt Bolton was saying is that, part of the citizen's ethic is you get people into making change happen you they get wins and then they become advocates for other change that can happen you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Do let us know what you think. Um, have Have you been inspired by this week's episode are there campaigns I've been you would be interested in starting i'm gonna do rounds with you every every time we meet now <laughs> this doesn't help with my intimacy issues yeah uh but do um do do let us know what you think and if you've got any ideas for campaigns uh, you can email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on twitter at cheerful podcast or facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast um this comes from elizabeth stewart who says uh, i've just listened to the episode on cycling and i'm prompted to write like you both i've liked the idea of cycling for a long time but i've always been too scared i didn't have a bike as a child and rightly lacked the confidence to ride on roads 
However, after hearing Chris Boardman talking on another health-related podcast, I I think the emphasis there was wrong. It should be on a on another health-related podcast. I don't think anybody could accuse us as, of being a health-related podcast. No, we we were health-related for that episode. This, this is true. This is yeah. true. Occasionally, yeah. health-related. I decided to uh, I had to do something and went to explore a cycle shop. To my surprise, I discovered that adult electric cycles are readily available here. I should add that she mentions in a subject line that she's in Thailand. I decided to invest and I'm delighted to say that I am transformed. I ride to work every day as well as doing numerous other trips and love being part of the cycling community. I get all the advantages of exercise, community involvement, freedom, environmental conscience, etc., but also feel totally safe and the motor allows me to confidently pull away at traffic lights as well as tackle hills in 40 degree heat. Wow. And the large basket on the back means I can use it for transporting heavier items too. I doubt I would have ever felt confident riding a bicycle on roads, but the tricycle has allowed so me to... So it's a tricycle? Yeah, an electric tricycle. I mean, I quite like the idea of an electric tricycle because it feels like you're less likely to fall off. Yeah, yeah, a bit more. It's like having stabilisers, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Maybe we can have a tricycle made for two. Yes. I'm into it. I mean, that, that, that would be a, a Photo video. opportunity. That, that would be another video you'd end up suppressing, like the one of me and you in the hot tub. Correct. That might come out eventually. Uh, this one comes from Callum Pinder with the subject line, Women in Traditionally Male-Dominated Sports. Hired and Jeff, huge fan of the show, have been listening since Park Run. So many of the guests and discussions have been incredibly informative and have opened my eyes to the issues we face in Britain. I know you've covered encouraging people into activity and also encouraging underrepresented groups. However, I believe there is still room for a show on encouraging women into sports which have traditionally been seen as men only. The most obvious example is football, where women are routinely trolled, harassed and abused online and offline by men just for playing a sport they love. Some of these trolls even come in the form of men who referee their matches. With the Women's World Cup coming up in the summer, there's a huge opportunity to spread the word as much as as possible look forward to continuing to listen and can't wait for the topics to come i think it's a good it's a good subject uh for a future episode and if you've got an idea for a future episode please get in touch send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerful podcast well the next time our listeners hear this outro we'll have on our live show that's right so uh, it's if you're listening to it when the episode is released uh, you'll be able to come and see us this coming yeah. Sunday tickets selling fast though yeah. so you need to uh, if you fancy coming you need to go online and get them it's going to be a great show and in a great location and your well. chance to tell us how you want to change the world in 22 and a half seconds yeah in 22 and a half seconds only we're... us could only we could devise <laughs> I think we can get a thing that has like a gong after 22 and a half seconds there's a challenge for our producer yeah exactly yeah. Uh, but we're looking forward to that do come to live show Sunday the 19th on the South Bank in London yeah uh, we should do our thank yous we should I'd like to thank Gina Martin Matt Zab cousin and Matthew Bolton and thanks to everyone who worked on the podcast. Emma Corsham is our producer. Joel Pierce is our researcher. Uh, we're back up from Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James it's Deacon made the identity to the music and the artwork. Um, you finally met her. And how did it feel? Powerful. Was was Emily in your mind's eye like she was in the flesh? Only better. Only better. Well, and thank you to you for being back. It's good to be back. It is good to be back. Yeah. And thank you to Sarah. 
No, I mean, if we're thanking anyone, we should be thanking the, 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 the doctors and nurses at Hamilton the Hospital who have Thanks. enabled me to be... And, I, and I've got to say, I want to sort of pay tribute to you because I thought you were incredibly calm throughout this process. I, I You know, you, you a bit like me, you know, you're a relatively anxious person, but actually you, you were the rock of stability in an uncertain situation, I thought. I was really impressed. Thank you very much. I would do the same for you. Yeah. And, and I'll keep a bedside vigil for you. And obviously the flowers were the sort of fiesta. <laughs> fiesta all right, all right. Fiesta I know, I know where you're going with this. So he said it with flowers. He said it without flowers. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.